0: Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. While you are there, you can learn more about who we are as a church, see the time and locations of our weekend gatherings, and see the different reoccurring ministries that happen on a weekly basis. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. I just want to welcome you once again to Crosspoint, so glad that you're here with us this morning. Uh, my name is Kyle, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Crosspoint, and uh, I'll be out in between the services and after service, I'd love to get a chance to, to meet you if I haven't already, and just want to say we're so glad that each and every one of you are here with us this morning. And uh, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you have it on a device, you can load it up, if you have a physical Bible, you can open it to it. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you but want to follow along, we would certainly encourage you to do that. Um, you can find some Bibles in the information rack in front of you. It's on page uh, 1293 in the Bibles in uh, the information rack in the pew in front of you. So you can go ahead and get turned to the passage we're going to be looking at today, which is 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through the end of the chapter, which is verse uh, 25. And so uh, if you are new with us this morning, this is actually a great time to jump in in the life of Crosspoint because we just started this new series uh, that, that we're going to spend time walking through the book of 1 Peter. We, we just started this new series last week, and the message is online. I would super encourage you to go take a listen if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. Um, but we're calling this series Exile. And the reason that we're calling it exile, um, Matt went into greater detail about this last week, is the book of 1 Peter, the letter of 1 Peter, um, when he starts the letter out, he references the people who would be reading this letter and and speaking out this letter to the house churches where it would show up. He refers to them as exiles. He calls them exiles. And again, Matt went into some detail about this last week, but I, I think we need to do a quick recap so that we're all on the same page because what we're going to talk about today won't make a ton of sense unless we kind of all have the the same framework to work out of. And Matt did a really good job of kind of giving us a container to put all of the information that we're going to be walking through in as we go throughout the rest of the series. But it was actually a kind of weird move for Peter to address these churches. Uh, Most of these churches were in Asia Minor at the time. It'd be weird for him to address these churches as exiles because predominantly these churches were made up of gentiles and so in the ancient world during the time uh, when this was written um, at least from a jewish perspective there was jews and there was everybody else and it just the collective term for everybody else was gentile and these churches that peter was writing to they had a large amount of gentiles as a part of the church Um, And so, when Peter wrote and said, greetings to to you who are exiles, they would be looking at their neighbor being like, what is he talking about? Like, what what does he mean exile? Like, I've lived here my whole life. My family has lived here their whole lives. We actually live together. We have generations back. This is our home. We've lived here forever. What is he talking about? Now, for a, a Jewish person sitting and listening while this letter was being read, uh, they would have a little bit more of a, of a framework to work off of. They would have a point of reference when Peter mentioned that word exile because the idea of exile has been a part of the Jewish history since the very beginning. Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden when they chose to rebel against God. Abraham put himself into exile by listening to God and leaving the place that was his home. And then the one that would be the freshest in everyone's mind is uh, the exile to Babylon, which was something that if you were a Jewish person, you would know a ton about. Uh, Long story short, the Israelites, they got to the promised land. They built up this kingdom. They continued to rebel against God. They continued to make all these same mistakes they always did, and there were consequences that came with them. And Babylon rolls in, a phys- the physical kingdom of Babylon rolls in, and it destroys Jerusalem, and it takes all the Israelites, and it takes them into captivity, and takes them back to Babylon. And so now this group of people is living in this foreign land with a foreign set of values and a, and a foreign set of, uh, of systems and all that, and they're living in this new reality. And they they recognize that what they are is they're exiles in a foreign land, and the Israelites never really get out of that mindset because once the the physical kingdom of Babylon was destroyed, there was just another new version that popped up over and over and over again. And so these Israelites, they always had the mindset of being exiles. And so a Jewish person sitting, listening to their pastor read this letter aloud to their church, they would have a frame of reference. But why why would Peter call everyone there exiles? See, Peter is is taking something that Jewish people would understand, and he's applying it to our spiritual lives. He's saying, yes, Jewish people, you, you consider yourself exiles, but whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to understand spiritually, you are an exile in this world. Later on in the a book of First Peter even references them being exiles in the land of Babylon. Again, that would be kind of a weird thing for them to hear because Babylon was gone. But what Babylon has come to represent in Scripture is any human institution where they got to decide what's right and what's wrong, when they set the moral standard, when they said, you do things our way or there'll be massive consequence, it's, it's this metaphor that's been applied, and it's something that we continue to live in today. Matt took the time to talk about that last week, how America is Babylon and Canada's Babylon and Europe is Babylon, Australia is Babylon, the world is Babylon because the world and the way that it functions is never going to link up and sync up with how God's kingdom functions. Now, we have a lot to do in the in-between. But if we ever think that there's going to come a time in before Jesus comes back where everything's going to sync up and everything's going to make sense, we have missed something. And so that's the mindset that Peter writes from. And that's the mindset that we're going to be walking into this passage of Scripture this morning with. So if last week was all kind of laying out the case that every single person who is a follower of Jesus is an exile in this world, this world is not our home, something feels off, and that's because it is. If that's true, then what we're going to talk about today is then what do we do with that? If it's true that we are exiles in this world, then how are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to do? This is kind of new territory for a lot of us. And it's really cool because Peter gives us some very practical, very real uh, truths on how we're supposed to live our lives as exiles in Babylon. And in fact, not just survive, but actually thrive in this world, this metaphor, this global Babylon that we're talking about. So there's a ton of really cool stuff uh, that we're going to dive into here today. And we're going to start reading right at the beginning in verse 13. Um, And it starts off with therefore, and when I was going to Sunday school growing up, I had these teachers, and they would always be like, anytime you see a therefore in Scripture, you got to check what it's there for, you know? And cheesy as all get out, but super helpful, because what this really, this one word, it does, it connects, if all this is true, then here's what it requires of you. Here's what you need to do. So it says, therefore, preparing your minds for action, and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So before he even gets into, here's what you're actually supposed to do, Peter takes some time to remind us of a couple key components. Uh, The first thing he reminds us of is like this new reality you're walking into, living and thriving as an exile in the proverbial Babylon. This thing is no joke. Like If you're really going to thrive in Babylon as a follower of Jesus, this thing is no joke. You need to prepare your mind for action. There are some things that you must do. Not to make God love you more, not to earn any kind of salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. But if we're really going to live as exiles in Babylon, there's some stuff that we got to do. It's going to look a little different. It says, be sober-minded, like get your head on straight, get ready to go because we have some things to, to get moving on. And then he reminds us where our hope is set. He said, set your hope fully, completely, all the way on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, set your hope fully on what Jesus is going to do and even what he is doing right now. He said, if you have any hope, to thrive in Babylon as an exile. Before we do anything else, you need to set your hope fully on the grace that Jesus is bringing. Look to the future when the feeling that we have here that this world is kind of our home actually syncs up with how the world functions. He reminds us who's in charge. He reminds us where we are headed. And then he reminds us who we belong to. Next verse says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Such good news, such a good reminder, right? That every single person in this room who has surrendered their life to Jesus, Scripture tells us we have been adopted into his family. We, we have been brought not on anything we bring to the table or any kind of merit that we can come up with ourselves. We have been adopted into God's family because of what Jesus has done and our surrender to him, which means that God is our father and we are called his children. And God gives us this metaphor of family that we all can relate to uh, to help us understand what he thinks about us, how he interacts with us. And there are times where we just have to choose to be obedient to God, to listen to what he says and to do it, but as we know, if you've never heard this before, you need to know that a relationship with God is just that. It's, it's a relationship. It's something that we do day in and day out spent by uh, spending time with our father. And one thing we know to be true when we look at our own families is kids who spend time with their parents tend to kind of start looking and acting like their parents, right? For better or for worse, your kids kind of start acting like you at some point, don't they? Or for better or for worse, you realize in yourself, oh man, I'm starting to act a lot like my mom or dad. I'm saying the same things that I used to roll my eyes at, but now all of a sudden I say without even thinking about it. I have to confess to you, I have a teensy bit of of road rage, just a little bit, all right? I'm not like the guy with like a baseball bat on the highway or anything or like yelling obscenities out the car, but I have a teensy bit of road rage, and I I think it comes from this. Like, I grew up in Wyoming. I've mentioned that before. I went from sharing the road with like antelope and deer and animals to sharing the road with like a different kind of animal, like especially the closer you get to like the Bay Area, right? Right? Like, we all know this to be true. And my, my family is from out of state. Megan's family is from out of state. And so they fly in and out of San Francisco a lot. So I do airport runs all the time. And they're usually at the worst possible time to hit, like, a ton of traffic. And I'll be honest, um, sometimes I get a little frustrated. And like I said, I'm not, like, yelling or I'm not, like, causing a problem. But what I find myself doing is I find myself having stern conversations with the, the people I'm sharing the road with, right? I'm letting them know uh, my assessment on their driving ability and how they're doing driving. I let them know what I think their intelligence level is based off of what and how they're driving, and I'm making sure that they hear all this through two separate cars and windows completely down. So they can't hear me at all, but I just need to make sure that they know my, my displeasure with how they're, how they're functioning. It's not a great habit, Something trying to work on. My wife's keeping me real uh, real honest about that. Um, but just a little over a month ago, I headed over to San Francisco to pick up my parents because uh, they were watching our kids while we took the high school students to Peru. And so I drive over there and I pick them up. Of course, it happens to be at a really heavy time of traffic, but we're like, we'll just go for it. We start to drive home, and I, I start to notice that my dad has the same habit that I have of having conversations with the other people on the road. And I had this revelation of like, hey, I might have picked this up from somewhere maybe, you know? And then I, my mind immediately jumped to, ooh, who's picking it up from me? And sure enough, the next time I looked, I noticed my seven-year-old Abby having uh, conversations with the cars outside of our minivan. Now, when she does it, it's really cute. She's like, now, 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 you need to make sure that you use your blinker. You know, like, it's really cute when she does it. But it it really drives home the reality that our kids tend to look like us. We tend to look like our parents. And the same needs to be true of our heavenly father. That's why Peter says, do not be conformed to the passions, the drives, the base desires of who you used to be when you were living in ignorance, when you just didn't know any better. He said, instead, embrace the things that are characteristic of your father, the things he tells you clearly to do. Things that we're gonna get into in a little bit. I wasn't sure if I was gonna get into this, but I just feel it, feel the Holy Spirit doing a little of this right now. Um, probably more than anything else I read in this passage of scripture, this really stuck out to me. I think it's so interesting how Peter talks about our former life. He says that we were ignorant, that we didn't know. And I find that so interesting. Because when we read about Peter in the Gospels, man, he was, like, condescending, and he was critical, and he thought he knew best all the time, and he was always ready to fight people, and he always saw everyone against him. And, man, God must have done some, like, massive transformation in his life as he got older to come to the point where he recognizes who we were before are people who just don't know the hope that Jesus offers us. This doesn't, like, diminish sin. Like, Scripture's really clear that sin leads to death, that that when we are, are held by sin, we are spiritually dead, that sin makes us enemies of God. But I wonder how many of us, when we look around at the people in our lives who don't know Jesus, we don't see them as people who just don't know any better. We see them as, like, the enemy. We see them as a threat. We see them as people that are just time suckers and energy suckers of the things that we want to do with our lives. I wonder how different we would approach those relationships with people who need to know Jesus if we approach them knowing you're just you're ignorant and not in a condescending or rude way you just don't know about this hope that I get to live in. And man, I should definitely be the one to tell you I think that would make such an incredible shift and even in my own thinking as I've walked through these past few weeks, I've tried to see people in my life not as a burden, not as a project, not as a threat or as an enemy but someone who just doesn't know the hope that I get to live with each and every day. How different would that be if we saw people in that way? So Peter kind of sets the stage. He says, get yourself ready. Set your hope on what Jesus is going to do, remember what family you're a part of, and then do this. This is where he drops the bomb on how we're supposed to live in this proverbial Babylon, how we're supposed to thrive in this world that is not for us. He says this, "'But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct.'" Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Again, he uses that word exile. And if what we spent time talking about last week is true, then that provides a new context for the first part of this passage of scripture, and it makes it make a lot more sense. See, if you're anything like me and you see that word holy up there, there's all kinds of ideas and preconceived notions of what that actually means, right? And kind of our modern interpretation of what it is to be holy is like perfect, like blameless, like sinless, like really, really special. And while some of those characteristics are true of God, when scripture talks about his holiness, that's not actually the definition of the Jewish word holy, if we look at the clear definition of holiness from a Jewish perspective and context it, it it the definition is that it's something that is set apart for a specific purpose something that is set apart for something really specific something that's kind of other something that is different and if this definition is true it takes on A whole new light as we wrap our brains around the idea of being exiles, especially as we look back through Israel's history. So let's take a little walk down uh, history lane here, and this will come into such clear perspective for us, I believe. When we look back into Israel's history and we look at that time... Real time in history where Israel's uh, Jerusalem was destroyed, their nation was brought down, and they were taken into captivity in Babylon and they were made exiles, the people of Israel had a few different responses. <laughs> A few different ways that they dealt with living in this new reality. Some of the Israelites, they decided that they were going to revolt, that they were not going to stand for it, that they were, they were angry about the situation that they were in. They were going to do whatever it took to overthrow this new ruler. In fact, they would adopt the very tactics that, that got them in this situation, that their enemies used against them. They'd adopt those very tactics if it meant that they could overthrow their, their oppressive rulers. There's a group of Israelites that that felt like that was the best way forward. There's a group of Israelites that decided it's better for us to just hide. Like, we're going to kind of isolate ourselves. We're going to protect our culture. We're going to protect our people. We're going to basically pretend that we're not a part of Babylon and do everything we can to keep everybody else out. Protect us and ours and, and, and move into that protection mode. That's what some people thought was the best way forward. There was also a group of people who decided the best way forward is just to assimilate. Like Babylon must know what they're doing. They've conquered like a ton of the known world up to this point. So, you know, if they tell us to worship these gods, we'll worship these gods. If they tell us to do these things, we'll do these things. We're going to adhere to their value system and their characteristics and all the things that they say are right and important. And Matt talked about this a little bit last week. There was one other way. Not a lot of people took it, but it's a way that God communicated he wanted his people to function. We see it in the book of Jeremiah. He was a prophet. He predicted everything that was going to happen as Israel went into exile. And what he told, what God told his people through Jeremiah was that there is a different way of dealing with this new reality you find yourself in. And it's build houses and plant gardens and have families and work for the betterment of the culture that you happen to be in, all the while staying true to what you know to be true about God's heart. We have an entire book of the Bible in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, that basically shows this small group of people, some of the names you might recognize, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these people who said, I will work for the betterment of Babylon, the very people who are holding us captive. We will work for the betterment of this culture, but if it ever comes to the point where we have to compromise what we know to be true about God, that's where we draw the line. Daniel and his friends, they didn't revolt, they didn't isolate, they didn't assimilate. They instead lived in this tension where they were loyal to the culture, but only to an extent, Um, how they were subversive to the culture, were ready to call out injustice, ready to take a stand when it was necessary. And as we, we think back on these different responses that the Israelites had to this new reality they live in, I see so much parallel in how we respond to being exiles in this world. Maybe literally last week, you, were, you sat in those pews and you're like, this is the first time I've ever heard myself described as an exile, this is the first time I've ever pieced together that this world is not my home, it's not for me, it's not, it doesn't have my best interest in mind or at heart, and this past week you've wrestled with, like, what is my response to that then? See, the first three responses, they kind of make logical sense, right? Like, it's easier for us to be angry about the situation we're in than to walk through it with grace, it's, it's easier for us to isolate ourselves from a world that's against us than to run boldly into it. It's easier for us to just assimilate and get with the program than to take a stand, especially if it will cost us. See, I think, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, most of us have chosen one of the other paths except for the holy one that God has laid out for us. Maybe there's some of us in this room where we've kind of we've taken the revolt path. We've decided, you know what? I know what's true. God has given that information to me, and so in anger with the voice as loud as I can make it, I'm going to make sure everyone knows. I want to make sure everyone knows how wrong they are and how right I am. And you know what? I'll even adopt the same tactics that are important to the world to make sure that they understand that. If it requires hate, it requires hate. If it requires violence, it requires violence. They need to know how wrong they are and how right I am. Unfortunately, that's a characteristic people look at and see in the church. Maybe some of us in this room, we kind of fall into the the isolation path forward. We're like, man, the world looks rough. There's a lot of scary stuff out there. And so, you know what? I'm going to get me and my people. We're going to build up some walls around us. We're going to surround ourselves with as much Christian stuff as we can and just really try to preserve what's going on here and not let the world taint us. And we're definitely not poking our heads out to make any impact out there. And maybe some of us, maybe some of us just find ourselves assimilating. Like, yeah, I want Jesus as a part of my life. He's important to me. But, man, this is just how the world works, right? Like, for me to find success in this world, I got to do these things. I have to be a little sketchy when it comes to my finances. Like, I have to walk all over people to get ahead in my job. Like, I have to look out for number one because who else will do that? I love Jesus, but I'm kind of adopting a lot of these characteristics and values of the world around me. And we look at that, and we even see some level of success in that. And we think, hey, I'm, I think I'm thriving. A few weeks ago, my family and I, we went to Fresno. We went to the zoo. We really enjoy the Fresno Zoo, and there's uh, a ton of stuff for kids. And so we met some friends of ours, Andrew and Stephanie Kaufman. Uh, they live in Fresno. We met them down there, we went to the zoo together. And so we have four kids, they have one kid. Anytime you have that many kids, there's always potential for meltdown, right? But we're going through our day, and things are going like suspiciously smooth. Like there's no meltdowns, there hasn't been any issues. Everyone's doing like really, really well. And so we're really enjoying that time. And we we sit down about halfway through our day at a little picnic area. We brought some sandwiches, and so we ate. We're enjoying ourselves. We decide, oh, we're going to go catch a show. Um, There's like a bird show that's happening. So we're going to go catch that. And so we pack up all of our stuff. We get all the kids. We get the strollers, you know, the big circus. And we head off in the direction of the bird show. And we're walking. And we get a ways away from the picnic area. We're about to round a corner where you couldn't even see it anymore. And Stephanie, as we're walking, she looks around, really proud of herself. She's like, man, we are thriving right now. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. We are thriving. It has been a super smooth day. And I look down that instant. I look down and I'm like, I am missing Vita, our third. Like, where where is my third child right now? Instantly on the heels of like, we are thriving right now. I was like, oh, I lost a kid. All right. And so I turn around. And of course, if you've ever met Vita, there's no stranger in the world to her. She's like sitting at another family's picnic table, like eating their food. And she just wasn't ready to go yet. And so we run back over. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm a terrible parent, blah, blah, Pick her up, bring her back along. And I I can't get that image out of my head because I feel like that's how a lot of us function. Like we're going through life and the way that we're living it seems to kind of connect with the way that the world functions. Like, we're finding levels of success in this world, and, and some of the tactics we've adopted from Babylon, they're not hurting us too bad just yet. And we're walking through life, and we're like, man, I'm thriving. And then we look down, and we realize we're missing something so important. We're missing something so precious. It's because we're walking one of these other paths, not the one that God laid out For us to live, not the path that is different, that is set apart, the path that is holy, a path marked by forgiveness even when people don't deserve it, a path that's marked with with kindness and care, a path that will uh, choose to show mercy to people who don't deserve mercy, A, a, a path that stands for truth, a path that will always look for the opportunity to show God's heart to the people around them. A life that says, I'm not in charge. I'm not calling the shots. I'm going to do what Jesus says is important. See, that's a tall order, right? But good news is if that seems impossible, you're right. In your own strength, it is. But if we are exiles in this world, it's because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. And because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus, he is the one who makes us path possible. That's what Peter says just next. Listen to this. It's beautiful. He says, knowing that you were ransomed, you were bought Back from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, the things that just come naturally are bent towards sin. We have been bought back from that, not with something perishable, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Because of what we celebrated earlier today, because of what we remembered earlier today, because of the work that Jesus did on the cross, this way forward that Peter describes as holy that looks so different than anything else in the world functions in this way, it is possible to walk it because we have Jesus living in us. Because the same power that rose him from the dead lives in us. That means this path is possible if we rely on him. Not just possible, but it's what we're called to do. It's how we're called to live as exiles in this world. Now, maybe you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I can track with that. Like, that's probably what we should be doing. But I don't know, like, how I'm doing in that. I don't know how far along I am. I don't know how surrendered I am. I need something to measure this by. Peter actually gives us the very thing to measure our level of surrender, our pursuit of holiness. He gives us something to measure it by in these next few verses. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, the work that God has done in us, remains forever. You want to know how well you are living this, this holy path that God has laid out for us one of the best places to look is to see how you are loving the people around you. It's one of the best things to test it against. If you are living your life as a follower of Jesus, if I'm living my life as a follower of Jesus and I'm doing a poor, poor job of loving the people around me, whether they're on my side or not, whether they're close to me or I'd consider them an enemy, if I'm not loving them, I'm not walking this path that God has laid out in front of me. And the opposite is true as well. If I look at my life and I recognize that my heart is soft toward people, that I forgive quickly, that I'm on the lookout for people who have need in the world around me, if I'm recognizing that that I see those things and step into those moments, it's a pretty good indicator that, hey, I'm on the right track. Now, that's a lifelong pursuit. I understand that. But Peter gives us something to measure this by. If we're doing a bad job at loving people, how in the world could we be doing a good job in loving God? And if we are loving people well, it's a good indicator that we actually know our Heavenly Father and are acting like Him. We're actually walking that other path. Because the love that we have for people isn't something that is even possible for us to bring out of ourselves. It's something that is birthed because the Spirit lives in us. Peter says it's not something that is perishable. It's something that will go on forever. So let me just quickly recap here, quickly summarize. Peter says if you are exiles in this world, in this Babylon, then there are some things that need to happen. You need to get your head on straight. You need to set your hope on what matters most. You need to remember what part of family you're from, and you need to walk a different set-apart path than the rest of the people around you, one that resembles Jesus, one that looks like Jesus as you become more and more like him. It's not something you can come up with on your own. It's something that can only happen in your life because you are surrendered fully to Jesus. Now, I don't know how all that hits you, But as I read through this, I got to the end and had this like literal like, that sounds tough. If we can be honest about that, like that sounds like a lot of work. That sounds exhausting. Can I even do that? It's so much easier to isolate or to revolt or to assimilate. It's so much easier to make excuses about why I do the things I do, but to really take this seriously To really thrive in Babylon as an exile, this seems exhausting. And at first glance, it may even seem like a burden. As we get ready to walk out of here, and I'm sure there's a lot to process, I know I'm still doing it. But as you walk out of here, I want you to leave with a word of encouragement. That this is not a burden. This is freedom. Freedom. That transformation is not a weight that God puts around our neck. It's a freeing from the chains that hold us down. Peter says it in verse 25. He finishes the statement by saying, this word is the good news that was preached to you. We live in this world that will never be for us, but... God is leading us down a path that has ultimate fulfillment in this life and into eternity, and that is good, good news. So don't walk out of here feeling heavy. Don't walk out of here feeling burdened. Walk out of here recognizing that this is hope. This is the hope that we have been talking about, that we would become more and more like Jesus, even in a context that isn't doing us any favors to help us move that direction. That is good, good news. And as we walk out of here this week, we'll be challenged with this. I'm positive we will be. But I want you to just remember this. As an exile in a world that isn't quite right, this truth of continued transformation of a holy path, set-apart path forward, this isn't a burden. This is good news. This is hope. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you, God. Thank you for the hard stuff that you allow in our lives, that you lead us into, that make us more and more like you. Lord, I pray that we would be able to live in that tension that even though things are difficult sometimes, doesn't mean that they're not right, doesn't mean that they're not good, doesn't mean that we should run into them with arms wide open, God. And I don't know what it looks like for the people in this room. I'm sure there's a million different examples of how this fleshes out, God. But Lord, I pray that each and every one of us who want to walk this other path, this holy path like you walked, Jesus, Lord, I pray that we would um, listen to the direction that you're leading us. We would not come up with excuses, that we would not try to justify, but Lord, that we would just trust you at what you say, knowing that you have the best for us, knowing that the way forward is not a way of despair, it's a way of hope. God, we love you. We thank you. Be with us this week in your name. Amen.